Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard sourdough crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheeses are delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we explore the vocabulary of cheese, the words used within the cheese-making world, and it's the language we use to describe the cheese we eat. I talked to Hero Hirsch, Head of Retail at Paxton Whitfield, Charlie Turnbull, a founding director of the Academy of Cheese, and cheese writer Patrick McGuigan, author of The Philosophy of Cheese. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard sourdough crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today Hero Hirsch, Head of Retail at the wonderful cheesemonger Paxton Whitfield. Good morning, Hero. Morning, Jenny. And Hero, as well as your, I imagine, very demanding job, you also teach for the Academy of Cheese, which is relevant to why I wanted you on this programme. We're we're exploring this week, we're looking at the the idea of vocabulary of cheese. She said trying to say it properly and struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking about the, you know, the cheese terms that people in the cheese world use and trying to unpick them. And I thought it'd be really useful to have you on this episode because I always think you're very good at explaining things very clearly. And I wanted to sort of focus on the cheesemaking aspect. I mean, I realise you're not a cheesemaker, but you have to, but as a cheesemonger, you have to, you have to understand what's happened, don't you? you and know. definitely part of the academy teaching that we do is all around this glossary of, uh, of cheesemaking terms and kind of explaining what they are. When people start making cheese, they add what are called starter cultures. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that is quite a baffling term to a lot of people. What, I what think is it's this, probably the most baffling term um, to, to, to the uninitiated, certainly. And it's a, it is a rather complex uh, subject, starter culture. So I'm going to keep it as absolutely yeah, top level simple. as I can. Yeah. Perfect. So starter cultures are added to cheese making at the very beginning of the cheese. So you'll add them to the milk at the very beginning of cheese making. And it will be a mix of 
uh, acidifying and ripening cultures. So it'll be a, a cocktail of bacteria um, and they're right. responsible for all sorts of things throughout the cheese, which is why I say it's they're, they're complicated. So yes. they give flavour, they introduce moulds which, you know, have an effect on the cheese as it matures. You can, if, and if anyone's sort of interested in starter cultures, you can, you know, you can buy them online. And you can, you know, go to cheesemaking shops and you can see exactly what's likely to happen if you add a cocktail, a packet of these particular cultures to milk. So there'll be, you know, you can buy gorgonzola uh, in a in a sort of freeze dried packet almost. Right. Um, and that's one way that starter cultures are introduced. Another yeah. way that starter cultures are introduced, which is more natural. So, and this I think makes more sense when we talk about starter cultures, like we do about, you know, sourdough starters, mm -hmm. is that they would take a proportion of the whey from the previous day's make and yeah. create starter cultures from that. So you're using like a continuous right, whey starter. Yeah. And I think that tends to be the point where people can really connect this to other other starters that they know of, such as pea yes. bread making. Yes, and keeping those whole process of continual usage and taking a part of what you made and using it again. Okay, so what happens to the milk, you know, which is a liquid, to get it to a solid cheese? Well, one thing that happens is is the addition of rennet. So perhaps you could tell us what what rennet is, Hero. Sure. So um, rennet is a coagulant. So what we mean by a coagulant is when we add the rennet to our liquid milk it will change it from a liquid into a solid. So it'll change it from one big sort of vat of liquid milk into one basically enormous lump of milk jelly called junket. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, and it comes from a few different sources. And I think rennet is definitely something we talk about on the counter a lot because we talk about traditional rennet and vegetarian rennet. So there are two quite different uh, sources. Right. Uh, which will affect, um, I guess, who uh, will eat the cheese if they have dietary restrictions or not. Traditional rennet comes from the um, the fourth stomach of a ruminant, so normally from a kid, calf or lamb, depending on whether you're making a cow, sheep or goat's cheese. Um, and it contains an enzyme which is responsible for turning liquid into solid. And there's a very good reason for that in, in terms of milk-fed animals is that that will turn the milk that they are drinking into something which is digestible uh, and into the solids. And so we use this enzyme from the stomach of the animal in order to, to coagulate milk. So that's the very traditional. If you think of cheese making, which is, you know, an ancient, something that we have done, you know, for centuries, it would have been people were using strips from, because it was a byproduct really wasn't it of the dairy product they'd have the calves they'd have they would use bits of the stomach i mean this is, makes people feel yeah. slightly queasy I mean, but it's a very practical no, use of a resource there's this sort it? of yeah. uh, you know myth about how it was discovered if they were using like a stomach to to transport liquids and yes. then suddenly realized that transporting their milk had turned into something solid but also something delicious so you know there are various kind of myths around like how potentially this was discovered and there are still some producers out there who, you know, rather than using like a sort of, um, they often, it's the way it's used is sort of turn into like a tea almost. So they uh -huh. brew, brew the, the, the stomach with uh, liquid and then you'll use a few drops of that. Um, there are still some producers out there who would just put strips of stomach directly into the vat with the milk. 
right. uh, which I'm sure That's is much harder to measure. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And then, of course, you have then you mentioned vegetarian rennet. So this is a, a later arrival. Oh, oh, is it actually? Have well, you said there's, that? T- there's yeah. two different types. So there's vegetable rennet. So um, vegetables, so all sorts of different vegetables which are used to have the same coagulating effect on milk. So thistles are probably mm-hmm. the most widely used in sort of Spain and Portugal is very traditional. But all sorts of other things that have been used through history like ivy leaves, capers, nettles, pineapple even, Gosh, sometimes uh, yes. mushrooms. Um, but yeah, thistle is probably the, the best known yes. vegetable Card- in Cardoon. today. Yes, yes exactly. A, yes, which is such a great name, I think. It's such a great word. I love it. Yes. <laughs> and then we have the other type of vegetarian rennet, which I won't go too far into, but they um, emerged in the 1970s and the 1980s. And so with advances in technology as to how we can uh, synthesise rennet, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because I think, you know, one of the things that in these episodes of cheese, you when you were talking to cheesemakers, if, if the cheese are protected by law, one, sometimes that area of protection about how it's made will stipulate the type of rennet. So, for example, Parmigiano-Reggiano cannot be vegetarian, can it? Because they, they use That's... a traditional rennet. Absolutely correct. And not all PDOs, so the protected na- food names, not all of them will stipulate the, 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 whether the rennet is vegetarian or not. But certainly some of them, it's, it's seen as an important part of the character of the cheese uh, to the point where they have protected that into the recipe. Right. Brilliant. OK, moving on. So basically you talked about how, you know, the milk's been turned into a junket and you talked about that process of, of coagulation, curdling the milk. And then, so I suppose perhaps one thing we should talk about, what the cheesemaker's looking for is to separate the curds from the whey. And I put those two terms together because they sort of go sure. together. Perhaps yeah. you can tell us what those are. <laughs> those are hero. Yeah, absolutely. So once you've, after you've got the large lump of milk jelly, you want to start releasing the liquid from that. So you're going to start making cuts into the curd. Depending on what type of cheese you make, you will keep the curds either larger or you'll cut them smaller if you're making a harder cheese. And as you cut into that, you'll start to separate the curds in the way. So there'll be a liquid that all of the little bit lumps of solid are floating in. That liquid is the whey. Mm-hmm. And then the solid is the curds. Um, and the curds are really the bit that we need to capture to, to make most cheeses. Yes, very true. And as you say, I mean, this is the, we won't get into it, but then from their many, many ways of treating the curd and working with it to, you know, to hence, you know, so many different types of cheeses out there in the world. And I mean, and the whey is interesting, isn't it? Because the whey has quite a lot of protein still in it, hasn't it? And so there is the tradition also of making, of using that whey to make cheeses. Perhaps tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's a couple of, um, I suppose, the most famous whey cheeses. So the first one would be ricotta, uh, whereby it is, ricotta I think means recooked. So that the whey is heated heated again and all of the proteins remaining are then skimmed off as uh, as little lumps. There's a Norwegian style of making whey cheeses in things like jetost or brunost, uh, Uh which is a brown cheeses where the whey is really cooked down and caramelised until it Mm. creates an almost fudgy sort of uh, product. Um, That's a good word for it, yes. (laughs) So so those are a couple of the whey cheeses which are made, but whey has lots of other uses outside of of cheese making even at that stage. Um, And as you would hope, it doesn't go to waste. Uh, so quite often it is fed to pigs, mm-hmm. which and there's that lovely this... link, isn't there? Yes, yes I think I know like what you're going with. Yes. and parmesan. Yeah. You have this yeah. symbiotic relationship between the two products, and 
and and the and the animals because um, the pigs are fed with the with the whey from the parmesan and cheese making so it's a, exactly. that is a very practical and sort of satisfying use yes, isn't it, of the, yes. the two as you say um, perhaps less satisfying but more widespread is the use of the whey protein to make protein powders so for bodybuilders Right, um, good point. And there was a point, I believe, that that, that almost overtook cheese making in terms of how luc lucrative it Gosh. is, that the whey would be more valuable yeah, yeah. than the cheese in some cases. That um, is so, quite so an definitely irony at, here. Yeah. at scale, whey protein is a really important part of that, uh, that economy. Right, wow, fascinating. I mean, a term that I've come across with is, is lactic curd cheeses. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. we won't go into every type of cheese we made. We'll, we'll never stop sure. talking here. But I mean, is that, could you tell me a little bit about that? Explain, because I think that's slightly baffling to people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're just going to take a couple of steps back because lactic curd is a different way of curdling milk to rennet. Mm -hmm. um, it has quite a similar effect in some ways, but it's a different, um, it's a different method. So when you are making cheese, you have milk, rather than adding rennet, which is an enzyme that turns the milk into a big solid, lactic coagulation is a much, much slower process whereby you are building acidity in the milk until it, it almost becomes so acidic it denatures, it capitulates mm. and it starts to clump together. And we've all done this, I think, when we've left milk in our fridge for too long. It's the start of our yes. careers as cheese, as lactic cheesemakers <laughs> normally starts with a pint of milk in the fridge being there too long. So yeah. it, it is, it's this very, very slow build of acidity which changes the nature of the milk and causes it to clump. Um, Actually, that's for... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but when I made paneer, that's exactly what Rupa, who was telling me how to make paneer, that's what she says, take some milk. You know, you sort of want the soured milk because you want you want that process to have started before you, which you then amplify it by, in paneer's case, by adding lemon juice, I think. So. Yes, yes. Yeah, lactic set cheeses, they will be, uh, it will be a, a fairly slow process. I think probably the best known lactic set cheeses will be families like um, fresh French goat's milk cheeses. Um, are quite often made that way in things like langre. Because you're creating a different type of curd to when you use a rennet, it's a little bit more fragile, it's more uh, sort of crumbly and delicate, and so it tends to be used just for small format cheeses. So when you right. look oh, at sort of yes. French goat cheeses as a, as a group, they tend to be these sort of small formats, sort of between 100 and maybe up to maybe 300 grams. And they're, because they're made with this very delicate curd, if you tried to make a large format cheese with a lactic curd, it would be too crumbly, it would fall apart. Right. That's a very interesting practical point about why cheese is coming. <laughs> Different sizes, isn't it? Fascinating. Now, thinking about the actual curd, because we've talked about the whey, one of the things that can happen to curd is it can be milled. Tell us about milling. Well, this is um, a process which is probably more associated with hard cheeses. So after the curd's been cut and drained, you'll have these sort of big slabs of curd and uh, you'll put them through a mill. So it may be like a chip mill that's sort of, it, it's a little bit like a potato chipper. Mm -hmm. You put the curd in, it comes out in sort of even sized chips or you might go for something that come, really sort of crumbles the cheese and kind of re re-crumbles it basically uh -huh. right. um, and this just helps with like the even distribution of salt so it's the point in the hard cheese make where you're going to add salt to the curd 
and you want a nice even sort of uh, crumb, I suppose, in your curd that you can then mix the, the salt into fairly evenly. So it right. just assures that you have a nice even, uh, even sized pieces. Right, okay. I was thinking of moulding and, and pressing. These are sort of, again, these are further on, I suppose, in the, in the cheese process or yeah you know yeah, we've is, moved away from the vat of, haven't we we're working yeah with the some curd. of the last yeah. stuff that you're going to do before yeah. before maturation i suppose yeah um so molding is the point at which the cheese quite literally takes shape so the size and the shape will be defined by what size mold you put it into right so the curds will be heaped into molds uh, which will allow for some drainage they normally have little holes in them sometimes mm -hmm. they look like little colanders or little baskets um, and that really does define that yeah the size the shape the imprint on the outside of the rind certainly there's mm. some cheeses where they have very famous in sort of very recognizable imprints i should say things like burkswell or manchego yes. sort of herringbone pattern that's yeah. all that's all put there by the um the cheese being pressed into the mold right and you mentioned pressing, which is, well, in fact, was my yes, was my other word. <laughs> so, pre so pressing. So, tell us what what is what is pressing doing to the curd? Um, and what, what is so, it? And what does it do? Yeah, what, what's its yeah, because a lot yeah. of cheeses you don't need to press them. They'll the sort of uh, they just let gravity work on them. So, soft cheeses don't tend to be pressed. It seems it's really something that's kind of reserved for for hard cheese makes. So after they've been put into the mould, sometimes they're stacked on top of each other or sometimes they're put directly into a press. And it is normally a sort of hydraulic press. And so it will apply a certain amount of pressure onto each cheese, which tends to increase. And what this does is it just expels the sort of final amount of, of whey and it helps it helps the curds in the cheese to sort of knit together. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's always associated with firmer cheeses. Things like Toms and Goudas um, would, would be subject to pressing. And that's what we were talking here. I did think of one term which is not to do with cheese making, but I think I, I've noticed it comes up a lot when I talk to people in the cheese world. And this is this term PDO. What mm -hmm. do you want to unpick that for people? What does it yeah, mean? Yeah, sure. Well, PDO is one of... Um, uh, one of the terms which is used to describe protected food names. So PDO literally stands for Protected Designation of Origin. There are other protected food names, so PGI is mm -hmm. another one. TSG uh, is another. Um, PDO is probably the best known and probably one of the strictest ones. And it's basically a scheme which is applied to uh, protect recipes and traditions around not just cheese making but other yeah, foods food, as well yes, and drink yes, yes yeah what it really does a pdo is it ties a region to a recipe so if you want to right. use the name of a cheese which is named after a region there will be certain specifications and these are he all held on file by the eu or there'll be a sort of harmonized scheme Mm -hmm. um, in the UK, and it will sp specify certain things about how that, in, in this case, cheese is made. So yeah. maybe around, as you say, the, the rennet, whether it's traditional or vegetarian, um, pasteurised or unpasteurised milk, sometimes the breed of animal which is being used mm. or the radius in which the food can be produced to feed the animal so you really do have a sort of historical record for each of these products um, but also a tie to a specific 
region. Brilliant. Oh, Hira, that was fascinating. I mean, it was very lucid. Thank you. Which is exactly what I wanted. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Hero, thank you very much. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today Charlie Turnbull, one of the founders of the Academy of Cheese and someone who is a trainer of cheese, both the professional world and the general public. So a lot of cheese knowledge. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning. Charlie, this week on A Slice of Cheese, we're exploring the idea of the cheese vocabulary, the words that we use to talk about cheese. So in a way, I wanted to talk to you about two aspects of your work. I thought perhaps we could start with cheese judging. I know you're very... You do a lot of judging. Um, and I was really interested because presumably, in a way, there has to be a shared vocabulary. If, you know, if you're trying to reach a decision about the merits or demerits of a cheese, you have to have the words to, to use. Is that something that you've seen evolve or, or do you think there are issues with that? Um, the short answer is yes and yes. Um, yes, we need a shared vocabulary. Um, and yes, I've seen it evolve. And yes, it's, it's a problem or a challenge or, or something that we need to, you know, to work with. When you, when you work as a judge, you're never alone, usually in pairs, twos, threes or fours. And often the first two or three cheeses you're judging, you're feeling each other out as much as the cheese is out. You're going, right, how are we going to do this? Where are we going to put our emphasis? What, what, is our, what, is, what are our needs here? And the vocabulary has to sort of step up, step up quite quickly, which is mm. why when you're working with experienced judges, it's easier. And when you're working with inexperienced judges, there's, it, it takes a bit longer. And is that, so literally, would you find yourself, if you were working with somebody who was a novice cheese judge, would you, which I'm guessing may happen that an experienced judge gets paired with somebody oh, yeah, who no, isn't. It, yeah. Yeah. Right. So then do I you know, have I to sort of... I, mean, you know, yeah. I, I want to make clear, these people are often professionals in a separate way. You know, I've been working with a technical person or a, a chef or something like that. So, so it's it's this multidisciplinary element of language which which needs to be considered as well. You know, chefs will use terms in a different way to where you know a cheese professional might. So there's there's a bit of jockeying to try and make sure you're on the same page. Yeah, that's interesting. And would you find yourself explaining, you know, other terms that you might use? Or, you know, and someone would just be sort of, and that might be a bit of a revelation to, to someone who's not from that world, not from the cheese world. I think we're explaining has rather a bad rap at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's say I travel with them to find a common outcome. Yes, there is, there's always some way you've got, you've got to get to a place where you're both talking the same language. And cheese language um, or food language in general is, is very complex. You find that within uh, food describing, there's a, there's a very, very professional level and established for use within corporates, used within you know, the academic level, uh, academic area, where language has specific meaning. And they have a lexicon and different institutions will have their own lexicon, which they adopt. And the words have very, you know, they're very clear meaning and they will attach to each of those words, you'll often have a scale. So if you say it's moosey, is it moosey zero or moosey ten or moosey five? And so there is a one end of the spectrum. There's a pedanticism that is a necessary sort of extra of that professionalism. But yeah. at the other end of the scale, you've got what you might call consumer language, um, tends to be more subjective, maybe more general. There's a lot of woolliness between, um, you know, words like creamy and nice, you know, things that can be multi-interpreted in different ways. Those yeah. are a challenge. But, you know, they, we do this all the time, so it's not a challenge that we're not capable of overcoming but yeah. you just need to settle in the language so everyone knows what they're, what they're talking about. And over the years that you've been judging Charlie do you ever see new words enter that lexicon you know I was just or, or has it already been sort of set in in the cheese world when you're 
judging? Is there a sort of set vocabulary that experienced judges would, would be using? But not all competitions are equal. So mm-hmm. probably the most substantially academic, and it starts from the American Chief Society of Judging, where they actually have two judging uh, uh, pathways. One is a technical side, and one is what you might call um, an organoleptic or a more subjective side. And and these in those environments, you are absolutely required to understand the language. They release the lexicon out beforehand. You're supposed to know it. You're supposed to have read it. You have to memorize it to a broad degree. But then, you know, the other inspection, there's judging at, you know, maybe a local cheese awards for a regional, but a regional county show. Um, and those people are just consumer pluses. Now, that is actually what the competition wants. They want a consumable, relatable outcome, if you excuse yeah. me. Yes. So, so it's not just about the, the language being specific. It's about the language being appropriate to the users of the wards. Yeah, yeah, very. That's a very good point, isn't it? Yes. What's it there for? What purpose does it serve? Brilliant. And I was really interested. I was thinking about the Academy of Cheese, which is this, you know, which is such an impressive organisation trying to spread cheese knowledge, working to spread cheese knowledge. I'm very impressed myself. And am I always? And so when you know, and it's a, you know, you're relatively young as an institution in in the cheese world in Britain. What did, when that was set up? Did you then have to come up, you know, with a vocab again, you know, perhaps with a lexicon in a way that you could, that you would be teaching to to the people who want to learn about cheese? Oh, without question. So, but I wouldn't say we've completed our journey at all in this area. So, within the Academy of Cheese, the the agenda is to allow the door open for the people with the least knowledge of cheese, and that's where we started. So, the principles of our first teaching material is that it has to be jargon-free, or at least jargon that's enjoyable to learn. So, as you learn, you pick up words, you pick up understanding. And our first sort of major step into that space was to create what we call the structured approach to tasting cheese, which doesn't sound like a language, but what it does is it takes you through all the aspects of cheese. We have the first stage, which we call observations, which are is basically before you taste it, what does it look like, what does it be prodded, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you move on to the taste and flavour, um, and that's when you actually you know, put it in your mouth. And, and taste and flavour is an interesting one, because taste and flavour, we use in the consumer space very interchangeably, you know, tasting notes, which sort of encapsulates anything that might be about cheese. But yeah. In academia, Taste and flavour are quite distinct. Taste yeah. is what happens in your mouth, and flavour is what happens in your nose. And the sensory arrays in each space are really different, they have very different outcomes, very different purposes. And so you quickly butt up against formal language. That's really interesting that those words flavour and taste are often used interchangeably, but actually they mean something different. What would tell, tell us a little bit more, just so, so people understand. So taste, fruit, let's start with that. Let's 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 start with the fact that there isn't uh, the, the, in academic use taste and flavour are distinct, and I'll come on to why they're distinct in a second. But vast majority of us are not academics, so to say that they're different words and have different meanings is is to disrespect the fact that we all use them interchangeably, and that's right in those circumstances. And trying to present language as alienating or describe some people wrong because they're misusing it is inappropriate in my in my experience. You know, we need more people to pay more attention to more food so that they're getting more from their food and enjoying it more. We've got to go to them when we use language, not expect them to come to us. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel very strongly about that. And that's a core element of the Academy of Cheese is that we're here to serve you. Our language is here to serve you, the ordinary person, the person who's doing it for their jollies or wants to improve in their career or whatever. The language must serve. You are not a servant to language. But 
within that, there are conventions. And within academic circles, taste and flavour are distinct in that taste is what, you, what happens in your mouth. And that is the five classic tastes of sweet, salt, savoury, acid and bitter. And when I say savoury, another word people use a lot is umami, which is a sort of more academic word. And there you have another example, umami, Japanese word for deliciousness, uh, first used in the sort of second decade of the last century um, and didn't really get adopted by Western academic sources, let alone Western, you know, um, general use until the latter end, sort of 1990s. And now is seen pretty, it's pretty embedded in cooks and, you know, the, the food use universe. Yes. But you ask a person into the street what umami means and they'll go and they'll, they'll hesitate. And there's mm. a problem with that because umami is, it's clearly not a, a Latin sourced word, a European sourced word. And that's a bit scary to people, which is why the Academy has chosen to use the word savoury, which is an approximation. It is not uh -huh. a direct match, right. um, but it makes it more accessible. And that's a common problem with language, making it useful and making it specific. And this is a challenge we come up against all the time. So that's taste. Yeah. And you're going to go, well, what else is there? Well, of course, everything else is enormous. You know, there's <laughs> sage and oranges and, yes. you know, cow shit and lavender. Yeah. And there's millions and millions of yeah. flavours. And that happens through your nose. And that is a type of smelling. It's called retronasal sensing. And that language is, uh, is, is, is really interesting because that is an experiential library, right? What do I mean by that? It means that you didn't get born with any of those nasal flavours. You didn't get born going, I know what lavender is. It means you've built it up over your lifetime ah. by smelling lavender on several occasions. Going, and your nose goes, right, I've got these 20 chemicals in my nose. And experience tells me that collectively that means lavender. Right. So this is so 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 flavor itself is a language we've had to learn from food into the nasal experience, the flavor. And then we have to do the second step of turning that into something we vocalize. So within the language of flavor, we actually need to know two languages. We need the language of all the possible smells in the world and the language of being able to name them and talk about them. Right. That's quite a challenge. <laughs> oh, it is. I mean, it is. Yeah. It is. I mean, academics disagree, but you know, most people there are at least ten thousand potential smells that you could you could eat. Flavors, smells, mm. flavors. Uh, others will tell you there are literally millions because there are four hundred uh, senses in your nose, and they do not act individually. So, if sense of one, thirty-two, and four hundred go off, that's different from one, thirty-two, and three hundred and twenty-two. If you sort of mean, I'm right, now yes. going to cut this yeah, for yeah. sure. But it's yeah. um, but but they are so that those chemicals form sentences of their own. If you see right. what I mean, so, put, you have yes. a so they so they have a series of chemical triggers that form a little a little sentence, and and there's emphasis on the sentence. So this chemical has got more of it, or it's in the context of another chemical. The brain will go, hang on, pay more attention to that one. So so the language of taste, a language of flavour, is very similar to the physical experience of flavour. Right. That's interesting. So when you are teaching, Charlie, let's suppose you've started with people who, you know, who are not from the cheese world, but they want to learn about cheese, um, you know, let's at the Academy of Cheese. Is one of the things that you go on, is it a journey where perhaps at the end they have found a shared um, vocabulary to, to describe what they're tasting? So, so initially we aren't really hung up on what they experience because this is another challenge for us. In the same way as we'll have different languages, we physically experience flavors in a different way, flavors and tastes. 
Yeah. Um, so we can't expect people to eat the same piece of cheese and, and say the same things, even right. if they have the same language. They've got to um, they've, they've got to find their own way through their experience. Um, and, you know, if, if you've only had experience of lavender and never of marjoram, marjoram might come up your nose and you're just going to let it go because it's just it's not there for you. You've never. Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally outside your experience. It's like meeting a word. You don't know what it means. Yeah. And he goes, well, that's fine. But someone's going to have to explain that to me. You know, and, and, and so so flavors themselves are, are. So so in our first two levels of the Academy of Cheese, it's really about talking to each other and talking to cheese and finding any words, trying to find space. And we give them a flavor map. So we have a series of what we think of as, as, as bundles, which are dairy, um, animal, fungal or fermented, mineral or chemical, fruity or floral, and vegetable or herbaceous, which gathers the flavors into little parcels that allows people to go, hang on a second, this is a bit fruity. So they go over to the fruity area and they start looking down the different types of fruit. And this is what's really interesting about language is its connection, right? So you've got that and you go, I don't know what that is. Oh, it says strawberry. That, you know, it is strawberry. And, they go, and the other guy goes, are you sure it's not raspberry? And then you talk to each other, is it strawberry, is it raspberry? And then you go, I think it's wrong. Then you agree. And so, so the, ah, so the nice. process of experience yeah. is really yeah. enabled by having language, even if it's wrong, if you see what yeah. I mean. It's yeah, about yeah, bouncing yeah, yeah. ideas. It's a starting point. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. It so it gives a framework in a way for when then you can exchange some thoughts. Yeah, and, 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 and you are not, as a judge, you're never allowed to judge alone. People aren't good enough on their own. They just never are. So judging is a very much collaborative process. And the process of talking is as important as the language and the words used. So that give and take, that evolution of an experience together and you're shaping it between you. One of the things, you know, we've talked all about taste and flavour because I asked you about it, but I was also thinking about texture because for me that's such a, you know, that's such a rich thing that cheese offers is an array of textures. And in a funny, and that was interesting when you said about there would be moosiness, but different levels of moosiness. I thought that's mm -hmm. really interesting because yes, because, you know, you can, you end, I, you know, I myself, which is these saying these words, you know, to describe an array, the same word to describe a cheese that has a lot of different textures. So, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So is that something that you also um, discuss at the, yeah, at the Academy of Cheese? It is. And actually that bit is, is almost more difficult to pin down because there isn't the high level of textural vocabulary that there is. Uh, with with taste and flavour, everyone talks about taste and flavour all the time. So you you know, there's a nice little sort of family tree. You can have fruits, but then you can have red berries, and then you can have strawberries. And you just there's almost you can you can go down a pathway and and narrow it down as much as you like. But with textures, you don't have that. You literally just have a series of textures, and it's one of them. If you see what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it doesn't it, it doesn't naturally fall into families in the sort of I mean you have very generic words like soft and hard or elastic yeah. or something like that. Um, but actually the sort of spreadable and moussey and butter like, you know, these are all textures which immediately bring something to mind, mm. but they sort of have things in common, but also they're quite different. Do do yeah. do you see what yeah. you mean? I do totally see what you mean. I mean that's what's so yeah, quite. I mean it really is sort of if you think about that world of, you know, which you call soft cheese, but then within it, mm. you know, the array of 
textures that you can find because some of them are so sort of light and delicate and sort of yeah. marshmallowy, you know, fluffy, and then others are very, yeah, sort of soft and melting and yielding. So yeah, wow, okay, yeah. Um, I mean, within that, you also get um, there are examples of where there are technical terms in the cheese making community which a cheese lover would need to learn towards. Not so straight away. Mechanical openings that just sounds weird, like you've got a digger or something like. <laughs> uh, uh, and actually. It's a very specific experience of the texture of cheese, um, which how it's come out of the press effectively. And so you can see where cheeses haven't been properly pressed and where cheeses have been properly pressed. And you talk about mechanical openings. You know, when you talk about eyes, for instance, the shape of the eye is terribly important because that can lean you towards how the eye was produced, whether it's appropriate and a whole bunch of things like that. So it's not, even though the general words are good, sometimes you do fall over the line into what you might call professional speak. And one has to be aware of that. If someone is using professional speak and is unaware of it, they could easily missay, and it's not their fault. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, because you know, we often use that term jargon as a, you know, dismissively because it's seen as a, as a barrier. But jargon is there, you know, within a world, people have jargon because it's their world and it's describing things mm. that they mm. know, they know about. It's, it reflects, you know, I suppose it's best. It's a, a level of expertise, isn't it, and knowledge, and that you have mm. this a specific vocabulary to talk about whatever it is. So I think what's really good, which seems to be what you're saying, is that you wouldn't want to use jargon and, and sort of alienate people, you, but you want to explain it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we mustn't ever lose sight of the fact that cheese is supposed to be a joy, you know, and and that, you know, people try with great extent to use language to explain what you might call the objective truth of cheese, if you could put it that way. Um, but you can do that all you like. You know, you've got to come back at some way and meet them on a subjective level, um, because that's what we're doing it for. That's why we choose it. That's why we spend time and money on cheese. It is not about it being purely nutritious. So, yes. so one's got to make sure that that language is available to, not just the jargon. I mean, it goes back to that subjectivity of, you know, as you said, we're all, we're, you know, we taste individually. And, we, you know, I've interviewed, you know, many great food producers and experts. And there's often um, people being very intimidated, have a sense that, you know, there's a right, you know, there's a right whiskey to buy. But when I've talked to these great <laughs> people in the world, they just go, you know, Jenny, you know, buy what you like. You know, it's what you like, what you enjoy yeah. drinking. You know, you might not, in, you know, you might not like a vintage whiskey. It might be too, too woody, you know, too long in casket for you, um, in cask for you. But you, so you might enjoy something I like. That's, that's fine. You know, there's actually, that's sort of it in a way, isn't it? That actually... You know, food and drink and cheese, of course, as, you know, for me, is, offers huge pleasures. And really, that's that's the starting point, isn't it? It's the starting point and it's the end point. You know, <laughs> it, you get into it because you're enjoying it. And at the end of the day, you're using language and learning the language or improving your language so you can enjoy it more. Wonderful. Well, I think that's the perfect note to um, to stop. Thank you, Charlie. That was fascinating. Very. Thanks for your time. We're much appreciated. A pleasure. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers and they always feature on my Christmas cheese board. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. 
Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy. Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits, and beer, all things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese. Well, this week on A Slice of Cheese, welcoming back an old friend of the podcast, Patrick McGuigan, cheese writer, author of a wonderful cheese book called The Philosophy of Cheese, which is sort of short but brilliant. So, um, hello, Patrick. Oh, hi, Jenny. That's very kind of you to say that. Thank you very much. No, I love that book because it's very clever. I mean, you do you cover a lot of ground, but very... Um, in a really succinct and witty way, which is so I really... Yeah, so in fact, this week, Patrick, the reason I invited you on the show was that we're we're exploring the idea of a cheese vocabulary, the words we use about cheese. And I thought it'd be really good to talk to a cheese writer. And I was really interested in your thoughts as someone who writes about cheese. What do you feel, you know, do you have a great, is there a wonderful world of cheese vocabulary or are there constraints? Or, you know, tell me some of the, your, your thoughts as a cheese writer. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm... Uh... I, I, you know, I write for newspapers and magazines and, um, you know, I wrote the book um, and I sort of spend an inordinate amount of my time trying to describe the flavour and texture of cheese in words. And what I find quite interesting was I speak to people in, in the cheese world or um, I speak to cheesemakers or cheesemongers. It's in many ways, it's quite limited the way people describe cheese. and and. and I, so you hear a lot. The two words that I hear all the time, Jenny, are creamy and nutty. So I can go up. I can I can go up to a cheese counter, you know, a brilliant cheesemonger, and I'll say, "Tell me about this little goat's cheese here. This little fresh goat's cheese." They'll say, "Oh, it's very creamy. It's got this lovely nutty quality." Oh, that sounds lovely. What about this this you know honking big bit of blue cheese over here? You know, that's going to blow the head, back of my head off. Yeah, this one's really nutty and really creamy. And you think, hang on a minute. <laughs> Not all cheeses are creamy and nutty. And, and and interestingly, when you research websites, you know, when I, I'll be looking up a cheesemaker's website and creamy yes. and nutty. And the other word that always comes up is mellow. And I have ah. no idea what mellow tastes like. I suppose it's sort of... You know, inoffensive is kind of what they're yes. saying. Yes, I mean, not um, astringent. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that yeah. Presumably, that, those are words that people think are positive. Don't, I mean, you know, if you're a cheesemonger, you know, that you'd see that that's a way in. Is, and perhaps it's a not a scary word. I mean, do you think people... That's really interesting, isn't it? Because cheese is such a complex food. And they say many cheeses. And say people who are, you know, who are having to try something for the first time, what do you say to them to try and pull them in? Perhaps you do use a bland, perhaps you then get pushed into this rather neutral vocabulary. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's about marketing. And, and also creamy and nutty is not wrong, you know, a lot of the mm -hmm. time, you know, th those are common flavours that you find in cheese. But I, I, I think actually you can pull customers in by being more descriptive. So so cr let's take creamy, right? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of cheeses are creamy, sorry, creamy by their very nature. You know, they're made of milk. Yeah. But actually what what I think a lot of the time people are talking about is dairy flavours. So, oh. you know, there's a whole world of dairy flavours. You know, there's milk 
Yeah. There's cream. There's butter. Yeah. There's yogurt. Yeah. Creme fraiche. You know, there's there's um, uh, different types of butter, for example. So you can have sort of that really cultured yes. butter, salted butter. Yeah. You can have whey butter. You can have rancid butter. You can have brown butter. Yeah. You know, so actually if I went into a shop and someone said to me, well, you know, this cheese has a lovely sort of brown butter note. It's like mm. caramelised But I'm actually more interested to buy the cheese. I, ha I have to make it clear here, Jenny, that I'm I'm as guilty of this as everyone else. And so <laughs> when I'm writing an article, I often go, I, I will always go through my article several times, you know, to, to check yeah. for typos and spellings. And I'll find myself crossing out creamy and nutty several times because I find myself using them as well. And then yes. I'll think, I'll rethink, I'll go back and taste the cheese and say, well, actually, is it cream? Yeah. Okay. Yes, maybe it is. But is it double cream mm, or nice. clotted cream yeah, or nice. sour yeah. cream? You know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's, yeah. there's various cream. Yes. That's, and especially so, nutty, nutty could be, you know, hazelnutty or oh, almonds, yeah. couldn't you? Or peanutty, you know, I mean, well, jelly peanuts after that before we go down I, there. But yes. I was doing a taste, <laughs> I was doing a tasting the other day with some, some cheesemongers, actually. And we were talking about nutty. Um, and I was uh, I was saying that perhaps one of the things we should do before we start a cheese tasting is to do a nut tasting beforehand. Mm. And we have an Very array of, you know, we have a peanut, some peanuts, some macadamias, some pistachios, yeah. some cashews, some brazils. Taste through them. Mm -hmm. Get really get our heads around the yes. flavor of nuts yeah, and yeah. then taste the cheeses because yeah. a roasted hazelnut is very different to a fresh hazelnut very which true. is very different yeah, yeah. to a pistachio yeah um so I, i'm going to branch out into the world of uh, nut tasting that's my Excellent. new uh, i look forward to hearing all about <laughs> you know patrick's description you know of you know, of a cheese with you know necks of pistachio in it so uh, i'm sure maybe yeah. i'll become a nut writer i don't know <laughs> yes. who knows you where mean, it might end up i'll i'll try and interview you i'll set up a podcast <laughs> <laughs> so i mean in fact and i was also thinking when you talked about macadamias what i was thinking about macadamias is this are they is the texture isn't it they've got that very waxy texture yes. and actually text and of course texture such a massive bit if you're trying to describe cheese you then hit i mean What's fascinating about cheese is the range of textures. But again, mm. it does feel like perhaps our vocabulary, you know, perhaps we don't have enough words for the type of textures. Because, you know, if you think about soft cheese, don't you think this, Patrick? You know, there's soft cheese, but within that one adjective, which is sort of accurate, but yet, you know, same in a world of textures within that, isn't there? Absolutely. And, and actually, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, texture in cheese is fundamental in a way. If I, if I compare it to wine, for example, you know, so I've done a lot on wine tasting and I've done qualifications in wine and, 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 and the overlap between wine and cheese in terms of flavour is really interesting. There is a lot of overlap. But with texture, you know, there is texture in wine. You, you know, mm. you have body and, and yeah. richness. But I would say in cheese, it's much more important in terms of the... Yeah eating experience i mean i would go to as far to say is you know it's sort of 30 percent, 40 percent of the enjoyment of the cheese is actually how it feels in your mouth as much yeah. as the flavor yeah. which i think is unusual you know for for a food type it's it's sort of an integral part of it and, it and you're absolutely... it's that you know you're right it's that multiplicity of this is you know this is why you're you and i are fascinated by cheese it's, it's you know we use the one word and yes, it's, it's sort of one food, but it sort of isn't because it's got so many forms and expressions, doesn't it? So, yeah. That thing, that thing with 
Yeah. That thing with soft cheese, you were saying, is it, so I teach the Academy of Cheese, um, well, level one and level two, where we go into lots of tasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first cheese I always taste on level one is a goat's curd. It's, a, it's sort of the simplest sort of soft cheese you, you can find. You know, yep. you, you make a curd, you salt it, and then you sell it, essentially. Um, but what's fascinating is when you when you taste that cheese, you know, never mind about the flavour, but the texture we end up often with my students, you know, teach the course online or in a classroom, is we often end up spending like 20 minutes just talking about the texture of a simple oh, curd. Words like come up, things like fluffy or yeah. whipped or um, light or moussey mm. or, um, you know, it, it sort of claggy is another word that someone brought yeah. up recently, which was a real sort of, I think that's quite a northern, yes, you know, north yeah, of England yeah. word, claggy, yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for, a, for a goat's curd that, was, that wasn't really fluffy. It was a bit, yeah. it was almost too moist. But yeah, brilliant array of words. And again, going back to selling cheese, you know, if you're on a counter or you're writing a website or a brochure for your products, I think, dis- you know, you could describe your goat's cheese as a soft goat's cheese. Or you could describe your goat's cheese as having a, a light whipped cream texture. Mm. I know which one I'm going to be more interested in as a consumer. So, you know, using vocabulary well and, and having yeah. a wide range of vocabulary is not just to sort of show off and, and to have uh, to have sort of interesting foodie chats with people. It, it's actually about really summing up the character of a cheese properly and then also being able to to convey that and, and interest people in, in in the cheese itself. So it you know it's it is important. I think the words we use. Yeah, very important. I mean, so do you feel because you've, obviously you've, you've talked about your wine education you've had. Do, do you think the world of you know in a way we thought about people have been sort of writing about wine and thinking about how to describe it. It feels for a long you know for a long time. And do you think it's has it is it better equipped than the world of of cheese? I think, well, there's the, qualif- the the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, um, which is sort of the benchmark system of qualifications for wine, has been around a long, long time mm. uh, and, and, edu- and is, a, is a global system um, that um, I think, you know, literally tens of thousands of people take the qualifications each year, if not hundreds of thousands. So they're a bit further down the road, if you like, in, in this yeah. world of you know structured approaches to tasting wine and so on but the academy of cheese which i mentioned before you know has has been going five or six years now and has a similar approach to sort of tasting cheese in a structured way and so i think it is developing and becoming more of a global language if you like just just one other just oh sorry no carry on yeah no i was just gonna say one other thing that that sort of struck me is that when i look at cheese and the academy model and the wine and spirits education trust model there's quite a lot of overlap in terms of the sort of words used. It, it, it's really trying to describe cheese or wine by referencing other flavours, like known flavours, if you like. Yes, so, yeah. you know, a cheese could taste of, uh, I don't know, parsley or grass or mint or something. So mm-hmm. you're, you're using other foods to describe cheese. And, and that also happens in wine. You know, you talk about... Yes. Asparagus, yes. Asparagus or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. quite. But, but I, yeah. there's a few people I've spoken to in the cheese world who, who there's a couple of cheesemakers I've spoken to who tend to look at the flavour of cheese in more in terms of shape, which is quite oh, interesting. interesting. So, so they'll talk about sort of round flavours or spiky right. flavours. Yeah. Or, yeah. or it's it, it sort of 
it sort of stretches out. It's got, you know, the flavour stretches out and then hits mm. a, a wall or there's an angle or it, it, it's interesting. an interesting and it's sort yeah. of, I, I, I can sort of understand what they mean is that, you know, when you taste the cheese, you often go on a, a journey with it. You know, the flavours develop and change in, as you chew and, and, and they develop in your mouth. And sometimes I find myself using sort of the idea of sh- almost like a visual interpretation of of flavor rather than just trying to think of other flavors is to think of it in a different way which i think i think sometimes i use that more when it when i'm sort of talking to people and i I do notice in tasting stuff people get what you mean when you talk about it really you know it's really round flavor or it's got um a spike in the middle or it's very flat yeah so i mean you know it's a philosophical point, isn't it? You know. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you know because you're teaching, Patrick. I mean, you, when you're teaching, your students are trying to verbalise what they're tasting. So you must it must be interesting listening to what the words they come up with. And I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, do you get a lot of the same? Do you get the same words, or is it really vary with you know with people? How well, it's really them? it's really interesting. So I would say when you're teaching a room full of British people, you know, that a lot of the words that come up are quite similar and, and quite familiar. Um, I've taught the Academy, I mean, I teach the Academy of Cheese course online and it's open, we sort of do webinars mm. and, and it's open to anyone in the world. And I, I've had people joining me from uh, Nigeria, from Canada, from Singapore, Australia, you know, France, Germany, Hong Kong, um, India. Have, have, and what's interesting, particularly I was thinking more with that sort of the students that join me from the from the east you know from say from china and india that that they will often have different references so where i'll be talking about a cheese tasting very savory and reminding me of say bovril (laughs) which Mm -hmm. you know is a sort of familiar childhood flavor almost for me they will be talking about things like you know i've had people describe cheese as tasting of kimchi and, and, ah, and fish sauce yes. and, yeah. um, and, and, and foods actually that I've never heard of. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't know that food. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, and again, we think about it, there are a lot, you know, say with fish sauce, there is a kind of savoury umami quality to, to fish sauce, which actually when they said it to me, I was like, yeah, that's really good. That's mm. actually really, but it's not, it's not a description I would have used because that's, yes. It's that you know, your normal reference frame, isn't it? Yeah. No, in terms of my sort of cultural upbringing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, I, when I was a child, we weren't eating lots of food with fish sauce in. So yeah. I think that's that's quite interesting. So I, I do think a lot of how we describe flavour and how we taste is influenced by our, cultural, by our culture and the context of where we grew up and, and what we eat on a day-to-day basis. And to go back, Patrick, to that point you were making, in a way, if you look at Cheesemaker's website, often there's very little detailed description, I find, because, you know, often I have to use them as a research tool. You know, I'm trying to yeah. write something, I want to check something, and I want to be reminded what that was like. And then you're like, OK, all they've given me is the weight and the, you know, the, you know some facts about it. But, yeah, but the description, which I'm guessing perhaps it's just a very, perhaps people feel, find it a tricky area, but often it will, you know, you, you won't 
get much description of of the flavour or the texture. You'll get a very quite cursory or brief descriptions. So it sounds to me when you were saying you felt like you, there's an opportunity in a way that the cheese world could be could be doing a better job in a way of describing what cheeses. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that I mean it's interesting because I visit cheesemakers all the time for articles and you know they'll 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 wax lyrical about you know the starter cultures they use and and uh, the temperature they're scalding the curd at and all that sort of stuff and at the end of it you know we usually sit down and try some of the cheese and I, you know i don't want to sit there and you know <laughs> um tell them what i think of their mm. cheese you know i, I figure they're going to know their cheese better than you know anything i can say but yeah. quite often when i say well what you know how would you describe your cheese you know what sort of flavors yes. do you think they're yeah. very they're very like oh I, Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't like to say really. They're quite modest yeah. about it, and I wonder. I'm not sure what that is. I think that's partly a, perhaps a kind of British reserve that they don't yeah. want to seem to be showing yes, off about their cheese yes. or something. Yeah, I can. I think you're right. A lot of cheesemakers are remarkably modest, aren't they? Um, but yeah. also, I think they're. You know, in Britain, we're not. You know, we're not encouraged really to describe. You know, I think it's this whole thing of our food culture in Britain isn't as rooted as it is in some other countries. And so I think we know we're not that whole thing of talking about food and then let alone sort of trying to describe it. I think it, perhaps it's just seen as a little bit pretentious or or out of your comfort zone, maybe it would be more correct. Yeah, yeah I think that's I think that's true. I think there's a, a concern not to be seen as being pretentious, which I yeah. think so, which I think is really interesting because, you know, that's not something that has affected the wine world. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, wine descriptions yes. are as, 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 you know, as complex and long-winded as you like. And a lot of the time the wine doesn't live up <laughs> to the yeah, description, description on the back of the well, bottle. Well, that's so, you're absolutely right. That's very interesting. That seems, in a way, it's a funny way, isn't it? So perhaps excessive modesty with cheese, but then, you know, so we might just say it's nice, you know, this is creamy. And then you eat it, you're like, oh, that's amazing. That's a better response. I was actually thinking, Patrick, because I've done a lot of chocolate writing yeah. and that whole chocolates, you know, and lots of chocolate judging and... And again, it's this, and it's a very you know chocolate is a sort of fascinating. It's got so many different flavours within it, and and they that chocolate world again seems pretty rather like the wine world. I think is quite confident about you know detecting <laughs> notes and flavours and interests, and they're very upfront about it. So perhaps our perhaps our final thought should be a rallying cry to the world of cheese. You know, look at look at chocolate, look at wine. Cheese is a wonderful food. Let's try and enrich how we describe it. Absolutely, I would. I would fully. I would fully uh, agree with that. Stop being so shy, cheesemakers. Come on, <laughs> yeah. show off a bit. You've got an amazing product that's absolutely packed full of flavour and texture. You know, sell it a bit. Um, I, I. I don't think you should be uh, too retiring in that respect. Perfect. Shout, shout it loud from the. Shout it loud from the cheese counter. I say. Excellent. Good. Oh, brilliant, Patrick. Well, Patrick, it's such a joy to talk to you as ever. A real pleasure. So, thank you for your time. Thanks very much. Cheers, Jenny. Bye. Bye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Enhance your cheese board with Peter's Yard Sourdough Crackers this Christmas. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.